we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Short and not so sweet. Maybe that's how you would describe uh, President Trump's inaugural speech, which I think was the briefest since Jimmy Carter. But now Donald J. Trump is the 45th president of these United States. Now, I did in general like his speech. I mean, I agree with much of what Donald Trump had to say, uh, talking about how bad things are in the U.S. economy, that yes, there were some people that benefited. People in Washington certainly benefited. I mean, Washington has been booming, right? Because they've been sucking all the wealth out of the rest of the country. So the bureaucrats and uh, certain segments of the population have benefited from central planning and central banking and the cheap money and the bubbles. But uh, Donald Trump hit the nail on the head when he talked about all the factories uh, like tombstones littering the landscape and how our wealth has been sucked out and the middle class has been hollowed out and that the country is hurting. All this is true. And I like the fact that he says we want to take back the government for the people, right? Take it away from the elite take it away from the bureaucrats, and bring the power back to the people. All that is great. The question is, what exactly does Donald Trump mean by that? See, does he mean get the government off the people's backs? Does he mean unshackle us from government, get rid of all the regulations, get rid of all the taxes and government spending, get rid of all the bubble blowing, and let's have sound money and higher interest rates, and let's have a real economy so that individual Americans can basically pull themselves up 
out of the ditch on their own, that we can roll up our sleeves and work our way out of this gigantic hole that the government placed us in, right? If it's going to be uh, just free enterprise and limited government and freedom, and if that's what he means by taking back the government for the people, then that's great. But what if he doesn't mean that? What if what he means is kind of like a Trumpian New Deal? What if he's talking about government proactively doing things to help the middle class, like big spending on infrastructure where the government employs people directly and creates jobs, kind of like they did uh, in the, the New Deal in the Great Depression, right? He's talking about um, potentially protectionism or how are we going to bring these jobs back or how involved is the government going to be? Is it going to be the government helping the middle class because they've been forgotten, they've been left out, and now the government needs to do something? We need some more programs or some more spending. So he doesn't really articulate exactly what he means by taking the government back for the people. See, what I want it to mean is just taking the power away from government so that people have power in and of themselves, so that they're, they're freed up, they're unshackled. We get rid of all the rules and regulations that have been inhibiting economic growth so that the economy can grow. Let's get rid of all the, uh, the parasites that have been uh, sucking us dry, that have been in Washington living off the body of the rest of the country. Right? They've been getting fat by sucking the wealth out of everybody else. So we can get rid of all these parasites. And I know Donald Trump is talking about cuts now to the headcount, right? cutting down on um, government employees, cutting back on government spending. Of course, all of the spending he wants to cut is non-discretionary. This is the small part of the budget. Everything that's big is off the table, right? All of the entitlement programs are off the table. And then, of course, there's additional spending potentially on infrastructure, on the military. And, of course, as interest rates are rising, well, that's extra spending interest on the debt. That's on autopilot, too, going up, just like uh, Medicare, Medicaid. And, and who knows what he has in mind for a replacement for Obamacare. I mentioned he's talking about everybody being covered, nobody losing coverage, uh, insurance companies not being able to discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. I don't know. It still sounds a lot like o Obamacare. But we'll have to see what exactly the president meant. Now, you know, you look at like the hearings from uh, Rick Perry, who is uh, the nominee to uh, uh, be the head of the Department of Energy. And that's a department whose name he couldn't remember in the debates. And he had to say, oops, and that probably cost him his shot at the White House. But he wanted to eliminate the Department of Energy until he's going to be appointed to run it. Now he thinks it's great. And in fact, in the hearings, he said, well, you know, I didn't realize all these good things that the Department of Energy did. Well, wait a minute. You wanted to eliminate it. You would think that Rick Perry, since he chose the Department of Energy as a department that he would want to eliminate, you would have thought as a candidate, he would have checked out a little bit about what the Department of Energy did. Or did he just grab onto that as a talking point? Hey, let's eliminate some agencies. Which one should I go for? Just like, you know, pulled it out of a hat. Like he didn't even bother to look at what they actually did. And he just said, uh, let's just eliminate it. Or, you know, did he know what they did and he wanted to eliminate it, but now he doesn't want to because he wants to run it. See, that's the problem with power, right? It corrupts, right? An absolute power corrupts absolutely. Nobody wants to eliminate the agency that they control, right? The Republicans are great at criticizing government when they're out of power. 
But the minute they're in power and they wield the government power, they own it. All of a sudden, it's their government and their agencies, and they can use it uh, in ways that will benefit them. All of a sudden, oh, no, this is great, right? So if that is an indication of what's going to happen, you know, we have all these businessmen coming to Washington, but are they really going to clean house? Are we really going to drain the swamp, or do we simply have uh, new creatures you know, now living in the same swamp? We'll see. One of the things that Trump uh, mentions, which maybe Trump doesn't even understand the implications, when he talks about how we're going to put America first, right? Because all these countries all around the world, they've been taking advantage of us, right? And that's going to stop. That ends today, right? We're not going to let these countries take advantage of us by shipping us all these consumer goods that we don't have to pay for. Now, he didn't put it in those terms. See, he says, we want to bring back all the manufacturing jobs. Well, that means we have to bring back the work. See, jobs are work, right? That's the hard part. And of course, we can't get to jobs without the factories and without the capital investment. So there needs to be some sacrifice. In order to invest in plant and equipment, we got to free up some uh, savings. We got to stop all this spending. And if foreigners aren't going to be sending us all these products anymore, well, that means we're not going to have all these products. And, you know, these products make our lives better. The fact that we can import all this stuff that we don't have to pay for, right? Well, technically, yes, we give them a bond, but hey, they, 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 the bonds never, they never actually cash out. They roll them over indefinitely. And the interest on those bonds is practically zero. In fact, it's negative when you account for inflation. But Trump doesn't really understand or he underestimates the fact that we have been riding on the global gravy train for decades, right? We get a free ride. The world is subsidizing America. So we're not taking advantage of, I mean, they're not taking advantage of us. We're taking advantage of them. So if we're actually going to make America great again by basically severing these relationships so that we now produce and consume, right? Because he said it's all about buying America, hiring Americans and buying the products that are made in America. Well, if that's what we're going to do, the biggest winners are going to be our trading partners because now they're going to get to keep all the stuff that they produce. That's a win for their consumers and a loss for our consumers. Now we're going to have to go back to work, right? Well, you know, we've been consuming for free. Yeah, the factories are gone. Trump is right about that. So all these factories that used to be here are gone. But you know what's still here? All the products that they used to produce. Because foreign factories, we're getting all the output of those foreign factories for nothing, right? The products come here and the pollution stays there. And, and so what he's saying is, no, we want to get, we want to do the work ourselves. Okay, fine. Well, now we're going to have to make our own train. We can't ride on, on the global gravy train. And foreigners now, if, if the trade comes into balance, they get to keep what they produce. Well, that's better than getting a piece of paper and I owe you nothing because they're not really lending us money, right? Because all the money or a lot of the money that we're borrowing uh, is being loaned to us from foreigners. But it's not really a loan if you have no capacity or intention to repay it. And we don't, right? We expect our foreign creditors to indefinitely roll over these low-yielding IOUs, right? So in, in effect, they're not loaning us money to buy their stuff. They're giving us their stuff for free, and so there's a huge benefit. Now, what's the downside? The downside is it's not going to go on forever. At some point, 
foreigners are going to wake up to the way they're getting conned and they're not going to want to play this game anymore. They're not going to want to give us their stuff for nothing. They're going to realize that these IOUs are never going to get repaid and they're going to decide on their own that they don't want to play this game anymore. And then, of course, we're in big trouble because now all of a sudden we're cut off. And now our, our, our economy doesn't function anymore because we've lost all our manufacturing and all we have is a service sector economy and we rely on all these goods coming in from abroad. So the longer it takes foreigners to come to their senses, the worse the U.S. economy gets, right? The bigger the hole we dig for ourselves. So it's a good thing if Donald Trump doesn't wait for foreigners to cut us off that we just cut ourselves off by saying no more. It stops now. We're not going to do this anymore. But what that means in the short run is a huge reduction in the standard of living of Americans because we've been living artificially. We've been living beyond our means. We've been living on debt. We've been living on imports. And if we have to start saving and producing, which we should do, and I hope we do it, but it does mean we have a rude awakening because we're going to have to deal with all these problems. And it's, you know, nobody has been prepared for that because everybody is expecting things to just get better magically get better under Donald Trump. And if Trump is actually going to make America great again, things can't get better right away. There is no shortcut. Things have to get worse first. And I just don't know if anybody up there on Capitol Hill is prepared for that. They're trying to prepare for everything just getting better immediately. And there's no way to do that if you're going to do the right thing. Now, what he might try to do is another big round of deficit spending, pump priming, only targeting all the new money printing and all the government spending kind of directly at the middle class as opposed to siphoning it through Wall Street. And if we do that, then maybe in the short term we get some kind of a boost, but we also get a boost uh, to inflation and whether or not it actually feels like progress will be, will be difficult to know. But it won't be good for the stock market. It won't be good for the bond market. Right? These markets are going to go down. And in fact, you know, the Dow didn't really have much reaction to uh, Trump's speech. It was up about 80 or 90 points when he started speaking. Then when he stopped, I think it sold off to up about 20 or 30. And then it came back up and it finished about where it started, up about 80 or 90 or so. Uh, gold had a run, you know, gold was up, a, you know, I think it was flat when he started to speak. And at one point after the speech, it was up maybe nine, nine bucks at the highs. I think it was only up about three bucks or so by the end of the day, although it was negative four or five bucks early in the morning. So still had a nice rally and the dollar was down on the day. And I think, you know, if you listened to Trump's speech, I mean, he's not backing away uh, from any of the campaign rhetoric. If anything, he seems like he's you know, doubling down on that. So I think to the extent that we get some of these um, protectionist type measures, it's going to be negative for the dollar. It's not going to be a positive like some people think. Uh, and the U.S. stock market and the U.S. bond market, I think, are very, very vulnerable here. But if we get new government spending and if we get some tax cuts, and it's all paid for with bigger deficits. Now, I know I mentioned earlier they're talking about some cuts, right, laying off some government workers. I'll believe that when I see it, right, because they can easily talk about it. But I don't know that they're going to get that done. And, of course, Trump does need the cooperation of Congress and, you know, to get his agenda. And Congress is not going to really want to approve a lot of these cuts, a lot of these layoffs, because the people who are laid off are, are mad. People are laid off in their districts, and now they got to run, right? The House members have to run every two years, and they don't want 
uh, people that were laid off from government jobs in their district voting for their opponents, right? This is a problem. And so they're talking about it, but I don't know that we're actually going to get much in the way of discretionary cuts. But even if we get some, those cuts will pale in comparison to the increases that are on autopilot from interest on the debt and entitlements. And then the fact that Trump wants to spend more on the border and more on national defense and more on infrastructure, all that is going to more than offset whatever cuts if they're able to get any cuts in the headcount. Uh, at government. And it doesn't sound like any agencies are going to get eliminated. I mean, maybe they'll try to reduce the scope of what they do. Uh, and that's you know certainly possible. But I don't think it's going to be enough. But the bottom line is that what Trump actually means, right, what he's planning on doing relative to what he's saying is still an open book. Remember, he was very much a Democrat, before he decided to run as a Republican. He is putting a lot of small government guys in his cabinet. And if that's some indication as to where he's leaning and who's talking to him, right, who is putting ideas in his head, then that is a positive sign. But I still don't think any of these guys really appreciate the gravity of the economic problem. These aren't a bunch of Austrian economists. If anything, they're more monetarists and the same old guys that were advising uh, George Bush and the same type of people who thought everything was great up until the financial crisis of 2008. Remember, all the Republican uh, strategists, all the economists, they didn't see the housing bubble. They didn't see there was a problem there. They thought everything was good. And so I agree with a lot of these guys. Yes, we need less government. We need fewer regulations. We need tax cuts. But understanding the dynamics in the U.S. economy and understanding all of the damage that's been done over the generations and how we've got this complete uh, bubble economy and understanding this relationship between us and the rest of the world. Yes, we've lost our factories. Yes, we've run these good big trade deficits. But the flip side of that is we've lived beyond our means. We've been able to enjoy a higher standard of living than what our true productive capacity would otherwise entitle us to. And that's what's in jeopardy here. And especially if Donald Trump is going to threaten and criticize the rest of the world. Hey, you know, you guys better, you know, we're paying for your defense. You're not paying us enough to defend you. Uh, so you're shirking on your uh, NATO responsibilities. And we're putting these tariffs and we're thinking about America first. And hey, we like you, but you know what? We got to think about ourselves. That may, of course, uh, result in a backlash. And we are putting in jeopardy. Uh, the, the fact that we've been supported and living off of the hard work of the rest of the world. I am all in favor of that. The sooner that that happens, the better. The, the problem is going to be the short-term implications of that are going to be very, very bad economically. It's going to produce a recession, and it could very well backfire on Trump as if somehow Trump caused this recession to happen when, in fact, it was going to be inevitable and the fact that it happened under Trump means it's, it, you know, it would have been worse if it happened four years later and there was another person president. But it wouldn't have been as bad if it happened four years earlier or eight years earlier because we succeeded so many times in kicking the can down the road. Now it's going to be much worse when we can't kick it anymore because we've run out of road. And if Trump did a better job of preparing people for the pain so that, hey, this is what's going to happen. These bad things are going to happen. And this is why these bad things are going to happen. And they were going to have to happen eventually anyway. So let's get it out of the way. If he, if he prepared people for that, then it would be okay. 
But if you make people think everything's just going to be great, right, and there is no short-term pain, that it's just all immediate gain, and then you get the short-term pain, then it's a problem because then you're blamed for it. It's like you caused it, and the you, you have to bear the, the consequences, which is why I don't think they're going to do the right thing. What they're going to do is more of the same, more cheap money, uh, more uh, government Keynesian stimulus, and Trump is going to hope that he can make it for another four years before the whole thing blows up. You know, Janet Yellen, she spoke a couple of times this week. Um, she sounds very cooperative. Her speech was more dovish, I guess, than her last speech. She said that she's not worried at all about inflation, even though we just got the CPI this week. And it's up 2.1% over the last year, December to December. That's above their 2% so-called target. We know that the unemployment rate is, what, 4.7, right? According to them, it's full employment. So we've got really low unemployment. we got inflation now at their target. Why are interest rates still a half a percent? You know, Janet Yellen is saying, well, we got to be very gradual. Why? If you've achieved your inflation target, if you've achieved your unemployment target, why are interest rates still at a level of half of where they were when we were trying to fight the bursting of the dot-com bubble and the September 11th event? We were in a recession, right? And interest rates are still lower now than they were then. If everything is great, why is the Fed still so frightened to raise interest rates? And one of the things that Janet Yellen said is that she said, well, we want to just be very, very careful in raising rates because she said if anything bad happens, we don't have a lot of ammunition to fight the recession, meaning that if our raising rates triggers the recession, we're in trouble because we don't have a lot of way to cut, which means she's worried that even small rate hikes could trigger a recession. So she's hoping that if she just goes very, very slowly, that it won't happen. But you know what? It's going to happen anyway. And of course, that means they have even less so-called ammunition to fight the recession because they wouldn't have raised rates. In fact, that's why Alan Greenspan raised interest rates by only a quarter of a percent every time they met because he was so afraid to do it quicker because he didn't want to prick the housing bubble. Well, he pricked it anyway. It's just that he ended up pricking a much bigger bubble and it was much worse. So now Yellen is not is raising rates 25 basis points, not every time they meet, but once a year, right? And hoping, well, maybe, you know, maybe we'll get out of Dodge, but they won't. It's, they're still pricking this bubble. And the fact that they're taking so long to raise rates simply means the bubble is that much bigger. And so when the air finally comes out, there's much more there. And, you know, in her earlier speech, the one earlier in the week, and I forget, she spoke, I think, to an organization out in California. She talked about why it's so important that we have inflation above 2%, right? And the reason she said this is she said that interest rates, of course, reflect inflation. And she said that if inflation was very, very low, then interest rates would also be very low, right? Because, you know, if you have zero inflation, you don't need a big inflation premium in your interest. But if, if, you, if inflation, let's say, is 3%, well, you need at least 3% above whatever you would normally charge in interest, because, you know, just to make you even on inflation. And of course, you need even higher because a lot of people pay taxes on their interest. So now you've got to, if you're paying taxes on inflation, you have to bake that into the interest rate. So when you have higher inflation, you automatically have higher interest rates. And so what the Fed said is we need to have a certain amount of inflation so that interest rates are higher so that when the economy is bad, we have room to cut rates to stimulate it. So what she's saying is, 
Americans have to endure an increase in their cost of living. We have to have higher prices, rising prices, instead of price stability or uh, falling prices. And we have to pay higher interest rates, higher nominal interest rates than we would ordinarily pay just so the Federal Reserve can tinker with the economy. Just so the Federal Reserve, when they think it's necessary, can try to stimulate the economy by cutting rates. I mean, the reality is all they do by cutting rates is blow bubbles. The Fed can't micromanage the economy. That's their hubris. And because they think they're so good at managing the economy, the rest of us have to suffer with a rising cost of living and higher interest rates just so they can fine-tune the economy when they can't even do it. Every time they do that, they just make it worse. So how about we just get rid of the Fed and then we have no need to have inflation high because we don't have to have high interest rates. We can have stable prices or falling prices and low interest rates and not have a Fed. Right? The whole purpose, supposedly, of Americans having to endure a rising cost of living is so the Fed can fix the economy when it breaks, when the Fed is the reason the economy constantly needs fixing because they're the ones that keep breaking it. And, of course, when they fix it, they don't fix it. They just break it even more. Now, also going on this week, we finished up the Davos uh, conference. I think I mentioned that on the last uh, podcast. But one of, the, I think, the interesting takeaways is that everybody seems to be so worried in Davos about populism, right? The, the Brexit or the rise of Donald Trump. And people, and they don't understand, like, why, why are the people rising up against the government? <laughs> well, look what the government has done to them. They don't understand all this redistribution hasn't improved the standard of living, right? They've, they've been doling out all these goodies and they think that the people should, should, should be satisfied with the crumbs that are thrown to them from the government table. And all their solutions are is, well, we need more welfare. We need more programs. We need to redistribute more money uh, from the rich to the poor to keep the poor happy. No, all that does is keep the poor poor and, and they're never going to be happy. What we really need, what these, what these uh, elites in, um, in Davos need to understand is that it's their progressive policies, their Keynesian policies, their central banking that is the problem. Everything is blowing up in their face, right? They are the cause of the suffering. And more government, more redistribution is not the solution to these problems. The solution to the problems is less government and more freedom. So when we have freedom, we have prosperity, we have opportunity. People can start businesses, people can hire people. And, you know, this is what I hope, again, Trump is talking about. We want to take our country back, not just change the direction of government programs so that they're aimed or targeted at the middle class rather than the rich. But I have no idea what exactly Donald Trump means. And some of the things that he says are, are, very, are very scary. Some of the things he says... When you listen to it, it's, all right, this is bigger government. This is another program. He just thinks he can do a better job than the people who have been running the government before. After all, now he is wielding the power, and he's just going to wield it benevolently, as opposed to people who had it in the past that did it you know, in a way that only benefited you know, the few, the elites, the bankers, Washington, you know, Washington establishment, and not, and not the middle class. But we, we need to watch very carefully exactly what Donald Trump does. I know he's probably going to take the weekend and relax a little bit, but next week could be a very, very big week. We can get a little bit of a window into what he has in mind based on what some of the early executive orders he issues or what orders of Barack Obama's are, are undone. But, you know, one of the things that's probably interesting you know, with this uh, inauguration is here you have Barack Obama and he's sitting there. 
And he, you know, he takes credit for what a great job he believes he's done, right? That he inherited a disaster from George Bush and that now we've had this great recovery. We've created all these jobs and he thinks he's done a great job. Now, I mean, maybe he doesn't really believe that, but I have a feeling that he does. I mean, I don't think he's just lying, uh, but he's talking, he thinks he's just done this great job. And now he has to sit there and listen to Donald Trump basically saying, everything has been terrible. Everything has been awful. We've all been suffering and I hear your pain and your suffering ends now, right? Now we're going to finally have uh, an economic recovery that Barack Obama has been bragging about. I mean, he has been talking about the fiction peddlers, right? The people who were trying to claim that the recovery wasn't as robust as he was taking credit for. Well, now you have basically the fiction peddler is the president. President Trump became president by peddling the very fiction that Obama was talking about. And now he's the president. And now he has that bully pulpit. And he is saying all these things, which I know are true, but which Obama had denied for the entirety of his presidency. And now he has to sit there and he has to listen to this and realize, you know, people are applauding back home. You know, it's like, you know, they've been living in darkness and now all of a sudden there's light. It's been eight years of economic darkness and now there's a ray of sunshine and people finally have hope, right? They didn't have hope for the last eight years, even though Barack Obama campaigned on hope and change. Now people finally have hope. They're finally hoping for the change that they had hoped Barack Obama would deliver, but after eight years, he delivered none of it. But again, you know, we have some serious, serious problems. We need change desperately, but there is no uh, quick fix. There is no painless solution. There is no way to get out of this mess without uh, going through a protracted uh, recession, depression, whatever you want to call it first, so that we can correct these imbalances. And believe me, they are much worse today after eight years of Obama, eight years of Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen. We are screwed up. This economy is screwed up in a way that probably no economy has ever been. And we have the capacity. Donald Trump is right about that. We have the capacity to turn this around. But do we have the will? And does Donald Trump and do members of Congress, Republicans in particular, also have the political will to get it done? I hope they do, but I'm not betting on it. Not yet, anyway. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hi, this is Peter Schiff. And- 
Long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams, and how to avoid getting ripped off for free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.